there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello, I'm Anya Lawler. You're very welcome again to the Your Politics podcast from the RTE team here at Leinster House. With me, our correspondent, Michal Lahan, and also the independent TD, uh, Cahal Berry. And Cahal, I was... I was struck today a tweet by uh, from our colleague Fiona Mitchell, who's in Lebanon today with uh, the Minister for Defence, Thonish Demiel Martin. And it was a picture of the memorial in Tibnin uh, to our peacekeeping troops who have died there. You know it well. Uh, and Private Sean Rooney's name uh, now added to that list of names uh, of the fallen. Um, and again, you're you're not just a TD. You're a, you're a former member of the Defence Forces, a long and distinguished career with them. You served in in, in Lebanon yourself. Um, do we need? To, what are your thoughts today? By the way, uh, to kick off with, what are your thoughts about this visit and its significance? Yeah, I, think, I think it's very important that at least uh, Tanish has gone out. I think it'd be appreciated by the troops for sure. He also has some meetings with his opposite numbers in Lebanon, the Minister mm-hmm. for Defence and Minister for Foreign Affairs over there. Uh, I think it's very important he's there from a from a justice perspective as well, though, because we know there's a there's invest- a number of investigations. Yeah, yeah. So, so the UN one is nearly finished. The Irish one pretty much is as well. But it's the Lebanese one is the important one. And the institutions are so weak over there. Um, I'm not really convinced that we're going to come to a, a conclusion mm-hmm. in the US investigation. So it's important that we're, I suppose, inputting at a, a very senior level to make sure that investigation happens and the culprits and the perpetrators are brought to justice. And we know that Hezbollah's been growing in the strength. This is one of the increasing difficulties for the UNIFIL mission over there. The situation in Lebanon seems to be deteriorating by the month, incredibly unstable. A really appalling situation for the people of that country to be in. But should it mean, and given what happened uh, in December, uh, should there be some reconsideration or re-examination of, of, of that, the mandate in Lebanon? Yeah, absolutely. I suppose like, all those mandates are reviewed on a six-monthly basis uh, in New York anyway. Um, there's about 10,000 troops in Unifil and they're there for a reason though. They actually pulled out around 2,000 so about 22 years ago but they had to go back in a few years later because everything kicked off. So they're really, really a stabilising influence and it's not just in Lebanon, it's for the entire Middle East. They're keeping the Israeli military and mm-hmm. the Iranian-backed Hezbollah separate and that's a really, really important thing to do. If they're not there, there'd be mayhem and the possibility and of that... And if things c- kick off again, there's increasing tension between Hezbollah and Israel. Yeah, and and likely to like the, the pattern really is maybe every ten to fifteen years, and they have a right good go at each other, and then in the intervening years they kind of build up and stockpile weapons and ammunition, and it's all down to the the it's all connected with the the Iranian nuclear deal as well. So Hezbollah take their instructions from Tehran, and uh, if Israel has a problem with the the nuclear facilities in Iran and decides to do something about it, we would expect a lot of retaliation from from South Lebanon as well into northern Israel. Okay, so this is something we'll all be keeping an eye on. Uh, and of course, the whole issue of the Defence Forces, um, very important to you. You support the government as an independent TD. Uh, so your assessment of uh, how they're coming through and what more needs to be done. Yeah, so we had a lot of talk, a lot of positive talk, but not a whole lot of positive action. There's been a few small improvements. But if even if you look at uh, this time last year, so even the last 12 months, this time last year we had nine naval ships functioning. 
Uh, we now have four as of yesterday. And that just told, tells you that the Navy has collapsed by a 50% capability, more than 50% even in the last 12 months. So while most other countries in Europe are increasing their defence capability because of the war in Ukraine, ours is still in free fall. We actually lost, there was a net loss of 400 military personnel last year alone. That's completely unsustainable. It's not turnover, it's attrition. And we need to address the core issues. The core issues are very, very clear. The Commission on the Defence Force has reported there's a high-level action plan published. We just need to move to implementation and we haven't moved to implementation yet. Mm-hmm. And also, it's it's not just, um, you, you know, our seas. We heard this week the government jet is to be replaced, but uh, you have a big issue as well with our capacity to keep our airspace safe. And we know there's an increasing th- threat and we're, we're right on the edge of Europe and in many ways in a critical position in terms of infrastructure. Yeah, a very strategic location is, is this island that we inhabit. And a basic function of any nation state is to be able to police their landmass, their territorial and economic waters and their airspace. And Ireland finds it difficult to do all of those things, which is a, a major issue. So, I mean, if you're if you're home at your house um, mm-hmm. and you leave your doors and windows open and your house gets robbed and the guards come around the following morning and they say there's no forced entry here, how did they get in? And you say, well, guard, we just left our doors open. And the guards will look at you and go, okay, that was fairly lazy, that was complacent, that was reckless, that was irresponsible. And that's precisely what we're doing as a nation state. We've our doors and windows wide open and we're not taking the prudent, sensible precautions that other states are. And you've raised these issues on several occasions. You've said, you know, there's been a lot of talk and less action. It's now about implementation. But the Taoiseach says we could be looking at an election in the autumn of the year 24. The Taoiseach says no. (laughs) So in terms of delivery, I mean, is the clock ticking for you? Absolutely. Now, there has been some improvements in the, I I guess, the, the... the, the financial package has improved as in for, for the for the organisation. So there is actually a funding ramp now. So there's a bit more clarity in relation to funding. Um, there has been a small few improvements in relation to pay, but not to the extent that's required. The big problem for me is that we don't have a dedicated standalone defence minister. We did up until 2012. And after 2012, the the defence force capability just went into free fall because there was nobody fighting for you at the cabinet table. Mm-hmm. So our cur- current minister, uh, Michal Martin, he has four jobs. He is the Tanishta, he's the Minister for Foreign Affairs, he's the Minister for Defence, and he's a party leader. And if you're spending one or two days a month in any business or in any organisation, that business is going to go bankrupt because it needs hands-on uh, supervision uh, every single day inside Newbridge. The political governance of the Defence Forces is appalling, and these are the inevitable consequences. Appalling's a strong word. Absolutely, totally accurate. The structural governance of the Defence Force for the last 10, 10 years has been absolutely outrageous and as a result um, bureaucrats have a lot more power than they should have and there's very little political direction and the whatever minister is assigned the portfolio in a part-time basis the focus on other what they would regard more important portfolios like foreign affairs mm-hmm. or other matters. Although Michal, I'm sure Simon Coveney, the f- former defence minister and now Michal Martin, I w- would argue with that because the defence part of their briefs and their responsibilities is something that they seem to have, you know, been very committed. Well, well they've spoken very uh, passionately about. Yeah, particularly Simon Coveney and in the shake-up that took place in government, there was a rumour going around in those days that Simon Coveney was keen to hang on to defence if he could, but it remains in foreign affairs. I suppose it is uh, something that's run by this man at second from the top in government, in the Thánaiste. But equally, there hasn't been a Minister for Defence for quite some time. I suppose that does tell its own story. I think they'd actually agree with me, uh, Anya. I think uh, both those gentlemen would actually love to be just 
the Minister for Defence and focus exclusively on it. It's not their fault that they have multiple portfolios and I think it needs to be addressed. We need a dedicated minister. We had up until 2012. So what happened in 2012 was the trike were in town, if you remember, and, and the threats to the country were financial. So they busted down or they downgraded the Minister for Defence and they upgraded uh, a Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. And that was appropriate at the time because the threats were financial. But my view now is the, the Minister for well, I won't say the Minister, but the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform should be reintegrated into the Department of Finance and stand up a Defence Ministry, particularly in light of the geopolitical stresses and threats at the moment. Don't and tell Pascal Dunne that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a difficult enough week for him. <laughs> no. But actually, what, what, what you raised there brings me on to the issue of, of Ukraine and our defence, and then we move on to talking about other issues as well. You know, we've, there's been criticism from some European partners about our neutrality with the war going on and saying, you know, we should be more committed. There are equally those who are critical of the fact that we're taking part in the demining uh, training. So, you know, we're nearly coming up to one year of this war and it looks like it could go on for at least another year. So our neutrality going forward, can it stay as it is, in your view? Yeah, so we're not really a, a neutral state. What we have is a a quote, a traditional policy of neutrality and it's uniquely Irish. So our traditional policy of neutrality is that we don't have a, we don't join any alliance, which means there's no automatic obligation on us to defend any other country. Similarly, there's no automatic obligation on any other country to come to our assistance. And that's the piece we, we generally forget about. So we don't have to intervene if we don't want to. But another part of our traditional policy of neutrality is we cooperate with partners and neighbouring countries on a case-by-case basis. And that has been the foundation of Ireland's traditional policy of neutrality since it was first declared in 1939, incidentally, during the Second World War. So Ireland was, it's it's generally described as we were neutral on the side of the Allies during the Second World War. And my own view is now we should be neutral on the side of the Ukrainians. And what would that mean in practical terms? That we cooperate, basically. So we, we don't enter any formal defence alliance or defence pact, but we cooperate. And we've been doing that, to be fair. The £66 million has been given by the Irish taxpayers uh, to the European Peace Facility for the provision of non-lethal assistance. So what Ireland is doing is they're, they're buying communications equipment, medical equipment, fuel, uh, radios, body armour, PPE, uh, tents, clothing for winter, etc., etc. So that's what Ireland is doing at the moment. Is it a, a, a role of a strictly neutral state? Of course not. But we're not strictly neutral. We have a traditional policy of neutrality. Instead of all these issues, though, uh, what's been preoccupying the Doyle since its return, Michal, is the whole issue of expenses. It's turning out to be like a glass house with an awful lot of stones being thrown at this stage. It is. When it comes to filing election returns, Sinn Féin made a mess of their returns in 2016 and 2020. Pascal Donoghue did the same and really was in political peril for the guts of 10 days, but has come through it now uh, at the second attempt. His first all appearance last week wasn't up to scratch, didn't deal with questions. He was more combative this time. And he did too have that reassurance provided by the businessman, Michael Stone, who took responsibility for providing that assistance around posters. I think too, notwithstanding the fact that Sinn Féin, as Wednesday went on, themselves got into real trouble. There never was that energy within the chamber uh, that you were about to see a political resignation or a real push on someone. I think there was a sense of fatigue drifting into it at that point. Nonetheless, Pascal Dunn, who did have to address those issues and did have to come through that test. What did you make of it all, Cahaberry? I know when you were asking questions, I noticed you were asking about the SIPO process and so on, but the fact that this has dominated and taken, if you like, taken so much 
political energy in the last 10 days? Yeah, absolutely. So I think everybody last this week, um, first of all, the state has down a member of two state boards uh, who was working pro bono. I think it's going to be very hard to refill those two vacancies. Um, I think there's two political blocks really who got a lot of heat. One one group was throwing stones and in the end started receiving stones at the end of the week as well. I think the public last out. We should be discussing matters of particular concern to them like health and housing uh, and the environment um, not focusing on a couple of hundred euro for posters that's what SIPO is for um, I'm in favour of of empowering SIPO and everyone says in the chamber that we need more powers uh, for SIPO but then I think we kind of undermined SIPO this week we we didn't allow them to do their due process and we tried to I guess score political points and I think that was a waste of everybody's time really we should have been focusing on more important things it's been quite the contrast with what's been going on in Westminster, the scale of controversy over there uh, and the, the level of passion over the amounts involved uh, over yeah, here. Yeah, and that was one of the points made, that this was a relatively small amount of money and that seems to have been played out at constituency level as well. When the Fine Gael TDs went back to their constituencies at the weekend, they could see support for Pascal Dunn, who when some opposition TDs went back, they were getting a degree of criticism for tackling him so vociferously on it, which is an unusual thing for opposition TDs to experience. But I think at the same time, if Pascal Dunne, who had dealt with this a week earlier as comprehensively as he probably should have, it wouldn't have drifted into this week. So I think it was inevitable as long as there were outstanding questions. You were saying you think it'll, uh, what impact do you think it'll have on the local and Europeans? It could even be a general then next year yeah, as well. Yeah, I think look, if, you, if you want to try and uh, grab something positive out of it, I, I'd back up um, Michal there. Like, uh, I, I think Irish politics has improved a small bit from a standards and public office point of view. We, we remember a couple of decades back, uh, there was major Cooperate, uh, corruption going on but now we're um, it's a major scandal if uh, there's a donation of some services over a few posters so it just shows how, how things have improved at least from that point of view but I think next time round um, I think a lot of general election candidates in particular will designate someone on their team and say you are the money person not a single cent is spent uh, without going through you so open up your ledger and we account for everything I think people will be much more careful in relation to expenditure uh, next time out and I think if you look at a precedent remember Votegate a few years back people were generally quite complacent in relation to who was actually pushing the boat buttons inside in the doll chamber it's very very strict now and even when we were voting last night everybody goes into their seat everyone's in the, in the bubble and they take it a lot more seriously so hopefully some good will come out of it as well um, housing, Michal, is coming back to the top of the ag- agenda and of course the uh, Ukrainian refugee issue but let's deal with housing first of all so there was good news and bad news for the government this week yeah, good news in the sense that its target of building new homes last year was 26,000. It was over 29,000 built in the end. Uh, when it comes to one particular aspect of it, that, that social homes built, that had a, that was a target of 9,000 for that. That's going to be somewhere just above 6,500. Now, government saying that's up there with any of the best years in the, 70, in the 70s or even before that. At the same time, it shows the difficulties because when it comes to social housing, there's that target to build 90,000 by the end of the decade. And they were talking about an average of 10,000 per year. So it's falling short of that. And then there are the studies of the Housing Commission uh, that talk about really the housing need that is out there at the moment. And that if government is talking about maybe getting up to about 33,000 a year being built, that that falls way, way short, tens of thousands short as to what's really required. Eamon Ryan sticking by the plan today when he was taking leaders' questions, saying the government will smash housing targets and deliver that way. At the same time, you do seem to sense some major disparity now between what's required to happen Mm -hmm. on the ground and the way the government is is moving here. 
And it's hard, Cahalberry, to see how housing targets can be smashed when there's a lot of data coming in that in the second half of last year, housing commencements were falling off really badly because, and you know, there have been various reports on the reasons. There's the higher interest rates, uh, there's the planning backlog and problems, uh, and there's construction feder- construction inflation, which is impacting all of this. And the Taoiseach himself has been saying, you know, the government may have to step in. So are we looking at bailouts for developers again in order to get those targets even halfway met? Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. There's, there's other options. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit still out there. Like in rural Ireland, there's a lot of derelict buildings still there. There's your, your own uh, report today about the, the ghost estates that are still there. I mean, when you think of it, there's still a couple of thousand houses unfinished inside in ghost estates. I mean, that's completely scandalous, really. Uh, rural Ireland, if you empower people who ha- who have a relative or themselves who have a, a I guess, a, a dwelling that's derelict, and the Creek Kona program is for that, if you empower local builders and local people to do that, that'll make a big difference. But there's well. an awful lot of red tape, isn't there, in that between, yeah. you know, the banks won't give you the mortgage because yeah. it, the, the building isn't sound and yaddy. And so, so trying to get all those ducks in a row can mm. still make it really difficult for people to go through with these yeah. schemes. Yeah, I agreed. And the state construction company has been thought in the past. Like, I'd be a big fan of this. And it doesn't have to be at a national level. If you get a good local authority chief executive and say, look, we want to set up a small local authority uh, construction company with 50, 60 people. We'll do it as a pilot. And if it goes well, we'll prove the concept and we can roll it out uh, cross country, uh, across the yeah. across the nation. I think it's a good way to go because if you have scale, if you have a, a large company like that, they can buy product, they can buy raw material at very, very uh, cheaper prices from a, from a unit cost point of view. We already own the land. We were, we're talking about trying to get more apprentices uh, in. I mean, apprentices can actually work for, for the company. So they own the land, you get cheap raw material, you own the labour, and you'll have a, a good product at the end that you can sell for a cheap price or you can rent out and get a, a, a income stream. So I think, I think the reluctance that, that is because the only other party who've really put some flesh on the bones on that and really advocated it is our people before profit. Yeah. It seems in all that when housing is discussed, that particular idea, yeah. which seems an obvious one, does, doesn't get much traction. No, no, I agree with you, Michal, but I mean, when you think of NAMA and the land development agency, I mean, they're far more substantial uh, entities than the state construction company. We've done the hard stuff so we can do something much more easy. And just going back to the people for profit comment, I think sometimes it's perceived that they just want the only people building houses being a state construction company. That's not what I'm saying at all. I mean, we can have two parallel processes working in unison, really, mm-hmm. um, like like in other parts of, of the of the country, other parts of the, the sector. So I think it's certainly worth doing. And if there was a brave chief executive of a local authority out there who wants to put a proposal to, uh, to Daryl Bryan, I think it's worth pursuing. Another issue that came up in the chamber this morning when housing was on the agenda was that whole issue of derelict houses and identifying derelict houses around the country and local there is a local officer at local authority level for each county now many TDs making the point that if that were to be a serious initiative chief executives at county level say you need an officer really for all big towns to be in place if you're really to identify and try and get those derelict houses back and we'll, I think we're going to be seeing an awful lot of focus on, on, on local authorities and a lot of talk about what they can do there. But it's, I mean, we're seeing it across the board. We heard this morning on Morning Ireland, women's refuges full up. And we know, of course, the situation with refugees. City West full up. So we have now this week uh, people literally sleeping on the streets because there's no room uh, for them. So... It, and, you, you know, the, the modular housing, that's not coming till the end of March. Hotel contracts running out. It looks like all of this will get worse before it gets better. 
It really does. And if there was at certain points in the last 12 months a degree of urgency that this is making it to the top of the cabinet agenda now, and notwithstanding the fact that Roderick O'Gorman wasn't at cabinet this week, there didn't seem to have been a discussion at cabinet about what seemed to be the, the huge emergency of the week, which would lead you to suspect, I mean, is there some thinking within government that the message has to go out, uh, that Ireland is full at the moment until they try and find more accommodation. Where they're going to find that, that isn't clear. Things like warehouses now uh, being discussed in some detail for the first time. We saw as well there were, there were disturbances in City West this week. Uh, we've seen far-right protests and some of them, um, you know, they're cropping up in a number of places. Uh, what's your take on the refugee situation, that it would get worse before it gets better? What are the solutions we're not using and the political fallout from it all? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely going to get worse. I remember having a, a conversation in at Leaders' Questions in the Dáil Chamber with Leo Vrager when he was taunched uh, uh, two weeks before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I just said, look, there's an 80% likelihood of this happening. We need to plan energy security, plan for refugee uh, arrivals. We now have about 70,000 Ukrainians and it's going to get worse because the conflict is going to get much worse uh, in March. We know the, the spring offensive is going to be launched by the Russians probably and the Ukrainians and there's going to be more refugees streaming into the European Union uh, so this matter is going to get worse and we need to get ahead of it. We need to get some contingency planning going and we need to prep for a, a deteriorating situation. What, you know, the, there's been no, it's not for want of discussion. I mean, this thing mm. has been talked, this crisis has been talked about inside out, day in, day out, up and down. What's the problem with yeah. the places? What's the problem with the modular housing? What's the problem with... Yeah, I, I always go for that low-hanging fruit, first of all, and there's still thousands of houses that have pledged accommodation. They actually want Ukrainians to come in, but they still haven't been taken up on that. And maybe a relaunch of that uh, proper module uh, on the Department of Housing's uh, website would certainly help. If people want to re-pledge and just emphasise the fact that we're still open for business. Nobody has contacted us. We have two spare beds inside in the room. There's funding, state funding available there now. I think that'll be a simple solution that can be done with IT, a few phone calls, and that should take a bit of pressure off. Mm-hmm. That's probably the first step. We've been hearing a lot about moving to a whole-of-government approach, Miha, but... Yeah, I'm not sure what that means, given that there is a cabinet subcommittee looking at this already. And I mean, it had been floated at one point that you would get a, a junior minister with special responsibility for that. that there seemed to be resistance to that idea ultimately when those junior jobs were allocated. So if there isn't a whole of government approach already, it's, it's hard to know why. You know. One other issue before we finish up, Quilta uh, and that controversial uh, Gresham House deal. Uh, we, uh, it, it's a done deal, says Charlie McConnell, but we'll be doing it differently in future. Is that really the upshot? That seems to be the upshot and that kind of not the preferred model, not the way to go in the future was something Leo Varadkar started this week. Up until that point, government had even been more coy. But the, the fallout is fairly intense and in the chamber this afternoon, there, there was a debate on it again. Uh, and it seems that this, on the face of it, is something government didn't know a lot about. And now looking at it, believe it's a mistake as the political pressure is applied. But, but the fallout is extensive, of course. It's economic at rural level and it's creating pressures there. But also the whole biodiversity issue. Jennifer Whitmore saying to Charlie McConnell that curlews will be something your children and my children will only see in books very soon uh, as a result of what's going to happen here. And there's the whole ownership and profit and all the rest question. And I know this is a huge issue in, in, in rural Ireland, Cahill, but there's also the issue of what gets planted. And, you know, everyone's wanting native woodland to be planted. But equally, Taoiseach making the point during the week, we need the Sitka spruce, we need wood for the building industry. Mm. Getting that balance right is going to be tricky as, you know, 
plantations go into rural Ireland. Yeah, so it's all about biodiversity. I mean, the, the clues in the name. Look, I'm totally against the, the deal as it stands. And I hope Quilty will be brought into one of the committees for a bit of forensic scrutiny in relation to why they went down this road. If they need additional investment, that's what the Irish Strategic Investment Fund is for. I mean, we, we have a surplus of four point. 5.2 billion from last year alone, probably the same going to happen in 2023. They're putting in 25 billion, yeah. aren't they? Uh, 20, 25 million. Million, which, which million is, which, sorry, yes. Yeah, which, which is peanuts. So they agree with the principle of the state investing. I mean, what better investment could there be for a, a, an, an Irish strategic investment fund than to invest in Irish land, Irish trees, Irish biodiversity on our own island? I mean, you couldn't make it up. I think the, the whole idea is, is, is tone deaf as well if you consider what we've been doing for the last 10 years, the decade of centenaries. Um, I mean, we have a solution here. We have the funding. And this is the first time in 15 years we actually have funds available. Ireland should be investing in itself. I think on that note, we leave it. There's not really much more we can say after that. Carl Berry, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Michal, thank you for your time as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And we'll talk to you again as usual next week. Thank you. Thank you.